Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. My name is Colby Sinusel, and I'm the Senior Equity Research Analyst at Cowan Covering Communications Infrastructure and Telecom Services. Today, we're speaking with Tom Lighton, the CEO and co-founder of Akamai, as part of our Leaders, Legends, Luminaries, and Visionaries series. Uh, Tom, thanks so much for being here. Oh, nice to be part of the series. Thank you. So I thought I'd dive right into it. You have quite the academic background. You graduated summa cum laude from Princeton with a BSE in electrical engineering and computer science. You received a PhD in applied mathematics from MIT. And before joining Akamai, you were a professor at MIT, which is where you co-found Akamai. Did you ever see yourself going into the corporate world and becoming a CEO? No, <laughs> I had no idea what the corporate world was all about. Uh, always thought I would be an academic and uh, loved doing that. You were Akamai's chief science, uh, scientist uh, until you became CEO in 2013. But if I'm not mistaken, for at least a part of the time while you've been with Akamai, you've continued to teach at MIT. Uh, what was the last time you, when was the last time that you taught a class? Well, uh, every other fall, in the fall term of even years, I give the lectures in a large uh, class called Discrete Mathematics for Computer Science. And pretty much all the CS majors, which is half of MIT, uh, take that class. Uh, and of course, there's a large staff that helps with the grading and the testing and covers lectures when I'm out of town. But I do that every other fall. And have you been able to stick to that? I mean, is that pretty, pretty much consistent since you've been at Akamai or is that really in the last few years? Well, the last decade or so, uh, very consistent. And of course, there obviously are times when I can't uh, be uh, in lecture. Uh, so I end up doing about two thirds of them and have somebody else cover the ones where I have to be away for some reason. It doesn't take a lot of time to do, but I, I do think it's a valuable endeavor. And I do that instead of serving on other company boards, for example. I saw when I was preparing for this, I think your brother is also a professor, if I'm not mistaken, maybe in Notre Dame. Is it something that's in your family? Is that something even when you were younger, you knew that's what you wanted to do? You know, uh, my, uh, it wasn't in my immediate family. Uh, in fact, my immediate family was all Navy. I think I was the, uh, the first of my generation not to be in the Navy, and that includes the uh, women. My aunt was in the first class of waves. If you go farther back, actually, uh, I do have relatives. One was a dean at Harvard. Uh, who I didn't know, uh, wasn't alive at the same time that I was. Uh, it's something that I always aspired to be, uh, just because I really loved mathematics and then uh, computer science and doing research, uh, you know, and studying that material. Uh, so, I, you know, by the time I got through college, uh, I really wanted to be uh, a professor. And do you think when you're, when you're finally done with Akamai and you retire that going back to MIT is, is something that you'll end up doing? You know, that's a great question. At this point, I, you know, I haven't really thought much about the, the future uh, beyond Akamai. I intend to stay at Akamai for the foreseeable future. Uh, but uh, I think academics is a great endeavor. Great. And just trans transitioning a little bit to Akamai, uh, you co-founded Akamai with Danny Lewin, who tragically died on September 11th on board uh, American Airlines Flight 11. Uh, I'm not sure how comfortable you are talking about it, but if you are, can you tell us a little bit about the role 
Danny actually played on flight 11, since it's probably not a story too many people know about. And I think it's actually something I think they'd appreciate hearing. Well, yeah, Danny is an incredible person, just, uh, you know, so talented in so many ways and a, just a great human being. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of his talents was that he was an expert in um, counterterrorism. He was a captain in an elite unit of the Israeli Defense Forces. He was flu fluent in Arabic. And when he got on the flight and the flight took off, he realized very quickly that, uh, you know, there was a hijacking uh, attempt underway. And he stood up and uh, tried to help the stewardess and to help uh, block the terrorists from getting access to the cabin. And, uh, you know, tragically, he was killed uh, before the plane crashed. Uh, the lead terrorist was uh, actually in the seat behind him, and uh, they were armed with uh, razor blades and box cutters. And we know this because the stewardess in the back of the plane reported it on the phone to the FAA before the plane crashed as, as the tragedy was unfolding and named the passenger in Danny's seat as the, the one person who stood up and, and tried to stop the hijacking and then reported that uh, he had been killed uh, before the plane crashed. It's a, a story that uh, hasn't been widely told. You know, it is, there's a nice book on it called No Better Time by Molly Raskin. It's really about Danny's life as a whole and uh, the founding of Akamai and, and of course the tragedy on 9-11. But, you know, Danny was the, the first casualty of 9-11 and died a hero. That's amazing. Uh, what a great story in terms of just what he obviously did and, and obviously unfortunate how it all ended in, in, in the end, though. What is it that the two of you were, were working on at MIT that ultimately led to the founding of Akamai? At MIT, at that time, I was spending a lot of time working on message routing, routing data through very large networks from the theoretical perspective. Questions like, uh, how would you decide what to store where so you could get efficient access? Uh, you know, in the future. And then uh, I started that in 95 uh, and really started working on the applications to the internet then as a consequence of conversations with Tim Berners-Lee, who was down the hall at MIT. And Tim, you know, very prescient fellow, obviously, and he realized that web congestion was going to be a big problem. And that the notion that you'd have a website in one or two locations and that a lot of people might come to that website at the same time and cause what was called then a flash crowd, uh, you know, would, would not, not work because the servers with that content would become overloaded or the internet would become overloaded. And, uh, you know, as a result of those conversations, we began working on uh, ways of distributing content that wouldn't have that problem, that would scale, that would be efficient, that would have great performance. Uh, and, you know, that's what got really was the predecessor to Akamai as a research project. Danny came in 96 and had some brilliant contributions, uh, notions of things that are like technical things like consistent hashing, which are used all over the place today, uh, but involve how do you decide what to store where, what replicas to make, uh, you know, so that you can have great scalability and lots of people be able to access what they want very efficiently. Can you talk a little bit about who Tim is? I'm, I'm sure a lot of people already do know who he is, but I mean, just the fact that all of you guys were there in this one place together, I mean, I, that's, that's pretty special and it's remarkable what kind of came out of that, but I think that'd be interesting for the audience to hear as well. Yeah, uh, Tim Berners-Lee is considered to be the, uh, well, the inventor of the web, not the internet, but the web. Uh, you know, the dub-dub-dub thing, you know, that was created by Tim. Uh, 
Uh, and in fact, it's Sir Tim Berners-Lee uh, with his official title. Uh, very, very smart fellow, very prescient. And, uh, you know, has made a huge difference, you know, in all of our lives. And it was really, you're right, quite an experience to have an intellect and an inventor like that just down the hall, be able to have conversations. And, uh, you know, our, my group was doing algorithms. And, of course, his group was worked on the web consortium way back in the day. And that was a great, you know, a chance for cross-fertilization and sharing of ideas. That's awesome. And I feel like I read uh, a long time ago that MIT actually owns, or at least did own, some of the patents uh, that Akamai has and that the company pays the school uh, a, a royalty. I guess, first off, is that true? And then secondly, and maybe more broadly, what had to happen to take this idea, this lab project that, that you and, and Danny were working on, and ultimately turn it into a company, a, a real you know, for-profit business? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, some of the work we had done was at MIT uh, and under DARPA contracts. And so, uh, you know, MIT or really the government had some ownership interest. Some of the work we'd done was outside of MIT. And so what we, and we wanted to get a clean start and make sure, you know, MIT was properly compensated, you know, for what they had done to support, you know, our work. So we, we concluded an arrangement where we took all the intellectual property from those early days and assigned it to MIT. Uh, and in return, MIT gave us an exclusive license. And then in return, as part of the package, we gave MIT a uh, ownership in Akamai. Um, and so they got a small stake in the company. And then, of course, eventually the company went public and that small stake became worth a lot of money. And so even today, there's uh, lots of uh, Akamai student uh, fellowships and uh, money has been used, you know, uh, to build, you know, help with buildings and so forth on the campus. So MIT got money. We don't pay royalties, never have. They just got an ownership stake in the company, which is probably worth a lot more than royalties. Did they, do they still own it? I haven't looked at the ownership list to, to know the answer to that. Do, is MIT still a, a meaningful owner of the company? No, I think they sold the stock as soon as they could when the lockups expired, which is normal policy uh, for them, uh, you know, so, that, so they can monetize it. Uh, and then use it to support, you know, educational purposes. So you 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 took this uh, academic project uh, and you 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 made an agreement with MIT, and you were able to kind of extract out and, and create uh, this company, which is obviously Akamai. What are some of the memorable stories uh, from those earlier days? Lessons learned. I mean, you said yourself you hadn't intended to go into business. I know you weren't the CEO initially, but. If you think back on some of those stories, some of the, maybe the pitfalls, uh, maybe some of the early lessons learned, um, anything that comes to mind? Oh, yeah. You know, it's uh, pretty wild uh, doing a startup, especially back then in the, uh, in the bubble days. Uh, you know, it was uh, good timing to start a company and ultimately get funding. Of course, going through the dot-com meltdown was extremely painful. You know, we had a $35 billion market cap with... I don't know, a couple hundred million in revenue and losing a lot of money. Uh, you know, we're starting to see some of the startups out there today with these wild valuations, losing money, not much revenue, but good growth. And then, of course, reality set in with a dot-com meltdown and our market cap went from 35 billion 
to about $50 million. And, uh, you know, our debt was junk debt and the debt holders really uh, controlled the company in a sense. We're the only company to survive that kind of reduction in market cap at that scale. Uh, and it was, they, you know, tough times. You go from wild excess in valuation down to, you know, a near death experience with not much money in the bank or ability to raise money. You know, it's a, a tremendous learning experience. We were we were very fortunate, I think, that we went out and got great professional uh, CEO experience, you know, starting with George Conradis sure. and then Paul Sagan. Uh, you know, a lot of the startups, the founders become the CEOs. And, you know, in that case, Danny and I said, well, you know, we didn't want to be the CEOs. We wanted to go get uh, really experienced business professionals because neither of us had that experience. And we were very, very fortunate to attract you know, uh, just someone like George to be our first CEO. In fact, we made a fantasy list, you know, our top 10 list of fantasy CEOs. And George was on the top, you know, because huge figure in the industry at, at IBM. And, and then he'd gone from IBM to, uh, you know, BBNN, which was a bunch of academics, and he helped create a real business out of that. And uh, we were a bunch of academics, and we wanted somebody who could really lead us and to really create a real business. And uh, Fabulous job. And George has been a great mentor. Uh, you know, I talk with him regularly, you know, even today after he's been chairman of the board for 20 years. You know, in terms of lessons, you know, I think it's, it's really important to always have a sense of urgency. And even 20 plus years later, you know, a sense of urgency is really important. Being innovative is important, obviously for startup, but I would say even more so today. You know, the tech landscape moves really, really fast. And there are some giant companies out there. And if you're not moving fast to being innovative, that's a, that's a problem. And you want to attract great talent. And we've been really fortunate there, you know, with our talent. Uh, culture is important. You know, we're going to make mistakes. And you want to recognize that when you're moving fast and you have a sense of urgency, you make mistakes. You can't be afraid to make the mistake. But you do want to correct it as quickly as you can and, uh, and then move on. And that's, you know, sort of, I think, are important, you know, lessons learned, you know, from the early days. And it's still, you know, part of Akamai today. You mentioned two things that I want to talk more about. One is the people and, and the second one's the culture. And obviously those go hand in hand. But one of the things that Akamai's, uh, about Akamai that's always impressed me is the people. Whenever I've had the opportunity to meet with them, they've, they've always, you know, struck me as, as very passionate about what they do, very knowledgeable about what they do. And, and then there is this intellectual component to most of the people that I've met uh, at Akamai as well. And I guess, are, are there things that you look for or listen for when you're interviewing someone that help you determine pretty quickly if that person would be the right or the wrong fit for Akamai? You know, our people are our most important asset uh, by far. And culture is a really important part of that. And absolutely, when we're hiring people, we, we want a, a good fit with the culture. And, you know, it's, it's hard in a half hour or an hour interview to really be sure. And, and sometimes it doesn't work out. But, you know, for us, you know, culture, uh, you know, teamwork is really important. Mm. You know, if there's big egos, that's not so good. You know, and at, at Akamai, the antibodies come out pretty quick. It's, it's about the team. It's uh, about the customer. It's about technology. It's not about ego or an individual. Transparency is really important. There's not a lot of room for grandstanding or, you know, uh, a, a lot of nonsense. You know, I, I, now with 8,000 employees, I'm sure we got our share of bureaucracy, but 
We don't like that. You know, at Akamai, the value of, of an idea is not who said it or what the rank is of the person who said it. It's really the intrinsic value of the idea. And literally, an argument, you can have an individual contributor, maybe just out of college, and if they got a good argument, they're going to win an, an argument with the CEO or any other executive. Because it comes down to the, the merits of the argument. It's a very much like, a, like an MIT kind of culture in, in that sense. You know, it's the value of the idea, not the rank of the person who said it. You know, you mentioned teamwork, you mentioned uh, technology, uh, you mentioned transparency, all things to kind of describe the culture of, of Akamai today. Would you describe it the same way when you took over in 2013 as CEO? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think it's at a high level, it's the same as when we started the company, you know. Uh, so I don't think there's been fundamental changes in culture. I think as we've grown, we've uh, added other companies and we've injected, you know, parts of their culture. Clearly, when you, you grow offshore into different countries, you have a blend of the country culture with Akamai culture. You know, one of the best ways I can tell that, you know, our culture is working and that, uh, you know, is when you visit an office far away from the U.S. and you can recognize Akamai culture there. Because when you have remote offices, it's really easy for them to become disconnected. And that can be a problem. Now, every country has their own country culture, which is, is great, but you want to see the main Akamai values there. And that's, that's been very encouraging. And it, you know, it, it makes a big difference, especially when you got challenging times. And Lord knows we've had challenging times in our history and 2020 is, is up there with everything going on. And it's really the, the culture that makes the difference at the end of the day. Have you had to do anything different as CEO uh, to maintain that culture during 2020 and, and through the pandemic? Yeah, because, you know, there's no in-person meetings, you know, so we really doubled down on uh, communication, all sorts of virtual events, more, in my case, just more one-on-ones, uh, you know, with people, more team meetings, uh, you know, lots of Q&A, letting people know what's going on, because it is, it is really hard now. Uh, and fortunately, you know, we have the tools that can support that. It's, it's not as good as, as being there. You know, I do miss not being in our offices around the world because I, I think talking with people in that environment or in the hallway, you can, you can gain more and learn more. But yeah, by and large, we, you have to work at it harder in this kind of a circumstance. And you know, you say that the culture has been largely the same, maybe since the beginning and, and certainly since you came over in, in 2013 to take over the role. What, what do you think your stamp on the company is? I mean, what, what do you think that you've really tried to emphasize and it has a little bit of a uh, Tom in it in terms of how you've tried to, you know, make your impression. I, you know, I don't know that I am trying to stamp Tom on it, you know, and, and even the transition from chief scientist to CEO was less of a fundamental change than would normally be the case. And that's, you know, because I worked so closely with Paul Sagan, my predecessor, and with George Conradus, who was our first CEO. Uh, and the three of us worked together very, very closely over, you know, 20 years. And, and even, you know, past 2013, uh, still work closely, certainly with, with George, you know, who is chairman of the board and Paul was on the board, also worked closely with him. And so it, it wasn't a fundamental change. And so if, if you want to say something was bad before 2013, I would say, well, you know, you, you got to, you know, hold me responsible for that too. You know, so I think it's... Um, there's, there's not fundamental changes uh, or a stamp per se. 
what are when you look back, what are some of the, the pivotal moments that you think really helped to, to cement Akamai as the dominant player uh, in its space? Is it is it key hires? It sounds like that certainly played a part of it. You know, geographical expansion, uh, changes in go to market, product launches, acquisitions. I mean, if you had to pick a few things that really stand out, that kind of got you to where you are today, what what would you say they are? Yeah. I think really all of the above. Obviously, you know, starting the security business, it was a huge deal for us. You know, now, of course, at the time, there was a lot of questioning and pushback on that. And then we bought Prolexic. We, were, we had a $50 million business, so did they. Uh, we bought them, people scratched their heads, you know, and that was a great acquisition for us. Of course, now we're over a billion dollars and we're, we're working on going to 2 billion, you know, in the security business. I think, you know, identifying the importance of the edge and having the, a real edge platform from very early days has been important. And, you know, for 20 years, you know, we were defending that choice uh, to the analyst community and, and the press because it was different than what everybody else was doing. And, and now, you know, it, it took us 20 years to convince people, but I, I think, you know, the world has come around that, yeah, the edge is really important you know, being close to the end user makes a big difference in performance and scalability and, and in security. Uh, and that's enabled us to have the world's best CDN platform by far, you know, and that's been, I think, a big difference for us. So you mentioned the people throughout this conversation, you're, you're mentioning getting into security. Um, and, and, and now you're, you're talking about the edge, which is really just the, the architecture, really, fundamentally of, of what Akamai is are, are the key things. You know, looking forward, do you think maintaining its position, Akamai's position, will be more dependent on more M&A, uh, getting, for example, into the next thing, you know, to maybe augment the security strategy, if you will? Or, or is it going to be new product expansion, what you guys do actually do organically? I think it's both. Uh, and it's been both through our history. You know, at a high level, we've got, uh, you know, roughly a $2 billion CDN business generates a ton of cash. You know, it's really important for us to have the most scale by far, you know, say an order of magnitude ahead of the competition, have the world's best performance, you know, by far, and to have great cost, you know, which enables us to be profitable in that business with great margins where our competitors are losing money. And when you're losing money, you can do that for a while, uh, but it's hard to really scale over the long, long term doing that. So it's important for us to maintain you know, great market leadership and share there. And then also to innovate around it, to add new capabilities. Maybe it's, you know, IoT, maybe it's blockchain, you know, more along the lines of, you know, edge computing, you know, or possibilities and other areas that are adjacencies. Now in security, we got a billion dollar business that's rapidly growing and we want to get that to 2 billion over the next three to five years. And part of that is just continuing to sell the products we have. We got to keep making those products better uh, because the adversaries are constantly upping their game. And it means bringing new capabilities to market. You know, and this year we've added our secure web gateway, uh, multi-factor authentication, you know, uh, page integrity manager. So we're, we are doing a lot of innovation and a bunch of that's organic and a bunch of that is uh, through acquisition. You've mentioned uh, Edge a few times uh, in this conversation. And if I'm being honest, if I go back a year or so hearing you talk about that, I personally felt like you were a bit dismissive, a little frustrated when people brought up the Edge, because I think my impression of what you were thinking is that we've been an Edge player for 20 some odd years. Why is this all of a sudden 
a big deal and, and you felt like this, it felt like you were a little frustrated with all of a sudden this big excitement around edge and maybe you guys weren't getting your just dues. I, I feel like listening to you at your recent sales event, you were more open that the way people are thinking about the edge going forward might be actually a little different than just having servers at the edge. Like you've always had that distributed network architecture. Have you, has your own view of, of, of the edge changed? And, and also something you also said in this conversation is if somebody, even a, a, someone right out of college has a really profound argument uh, in they're challenging the CEO, even if they have a good argument, you're going to, you're going to give them that acknowledgement. You're going to, you're going to go with them on that. Has that happened somewhere last year that kind of made you think differently about the edge? Well, well uh, that is, it, it, that's happened. I don't know about the context of the edge. You know, our thinking at Akamai, mine and the company is about the edge is, is the same as it was when we coined the term. You know, Akamai is the ones that created the term edge and created edge computing uh, and edge this and edge that, you know, back in 99, you know, with, when we, you know, launched our edge suite services. So our view of the edge has not changed. Uh, the physical aspects of the edge as we've gotten closer and closer to the end user has evolved as the internet infrastructure has evolved. 5G, it'll take another step forward. You know, the edge has grown to include more and more capabilities on the client, but we've been doing capabilities on the client since 2000. Uh, so our view about the edge hasn't changed. And I'm glad now that the world thinks the edge is a good idea. Uh, so that's good. I'm happy with that. If there was frustration, uh, it's more about that people were thinking, hey, Edge has just been invented now. Uh, you know, and that's just not, not true. Uh, and in fact, the companies that are talking a lot about Edge today really aren't at anything close to the Edge. You know, they would have their software, you know, in core cloud data centers, just the way it's been done for 20 years. You know, not a, not a change in terms of where it's physically located. And it's not close to the end users. It's not at the edge of the internet. But edge has become a marketing term now that everybody uses. Uh, and, and I think what's, what's happened is, you know, literally for 20 years, we had to defend why we were different in going to the edge. And our, our competition would say, oh, the edge is a stupid idea because it's more expensive. In fact, it's a lot less expensive. Oh, the edge is too hard to to operate. Well, we figured out how to do it really efficiently. It would be hard for someone to go there. Uh, we've also, you know, we, we have partnerships with 1500 networks where we're in their network, not peering inside their infrastructure, places where our competitors can't go because uh, you can't buy Colo there. In fact, we don't pay for it. In the vast majority of places, we have free access to the bandwidth, the power and the Colo. You know, and it's because we provide such value to our network partners by having our servers there because we carry so much of the internet content. Uh, so I think what's happened is after, you know, 20 years of defending why the edge is so important, now I think the world really does understand and our competition, there's no way they're gonna get to the real edge. There's no way they're gonna get 4,000 points of presence. You know, that's just not feasible for them to do so the next best thing is to say you have an edge platform, you know, in your marketing. And I think that's, that's what you see, or say you do edge computing, you know, when you really don't, it's, it's, you know, I don't consider the core, the core cloud data centers and getting transit out of there to be edge. That's the way it's been done for other folks who've been doing it for 20 years. When I think of Akamai, and I'm going to oversimplify probably to a point where it, it frustrates you, but um, 
you know, you do CDN, which I'll refer to as caching of content uh, at the local, at that edge. And, and you do some form of route optimization for, for dynamic content effectively that, that can't necessarily be cached. But doesn't edge, the way it's being talked about now, require a new type of product set using those servers at that edge in, in a different way, not just for caching, not just for route optimization, maybe where actually some of the compute uh, and not just necessarily compute for Akamai solutions, but for um, other customer solutions needs to occur as well. Yes, but that's not new. Uh, you know, we launched our edge computing services in either 2000 or 2001. Edge computing, edge Java, edge side includes. We were the, uh, I think with Oracle, we created the edge side includes standard 2000 or 2001. You know, so edge computing we've been doing for 20 years. And it is very important. Almost all of our customers are doing it. And I would say that of our 2 billion in uh, CDN related revenue, half of that is tied to what you think of as caching. Half of it is not. Half of it is, uh, you know, stuff that's not cacheable content. It's checking your banking balance. It's conducting a transaction, buying something online. Uh, and boy, we've seen huge numbers of transactions per second of things being bought online, first with Singles Day and then with Cyber Monday and Black Friday. You know, and, and you know, one case, over half a million buying transactions on our platform per second, uh, and for a single customer in one case. You know, and we've been supporting, and that's not cacheable, that stuff. Uh, and we make it be really fast and of course secure as well and scale. And we've been doing that kind of stuff now for 20 years. And that's, that's a good half of the $2 billion in what we would think of as, as CDN revenue. Um, to me, I, I meant for that to be included in my route optimization, things that, that are dy dynamic type content. Yeah. Um, so that's where I think about that. But we wrote a report on, on the edge uh, back in May of this year. And one of the takeaways we had is that when you think about the internet so far, it's been built for what we refer to as human-oriented uh, things. And what I mean by that is, is, is email and, and the World Wide Web and it's things like e-commerce and it's things like watching videos and, 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 and so forth. What we think of the edges is actually going to be the next internet that's built for machines. It's going to be built for drones. It's going to be built for autonomous vehicles. It's going to be built for robots on factory floors. And as a result of that, we think that the, the edge in the way I just described, it really is the next big thing. And it's going to expand the total addressable market for a lot of companies, certainly the cloud, uh, I would argue, but also those within what we call communications infrastructure, including companies like, do, do you think that the, the edge is the next big thing for Akamai in terms of, you know, it's going to give a huge level of growth to the company in the next 10 years, or is, or is there something else I should be thinking about? Well, I would say the edge has been the big thing for Akamai for 20 years. And I think IoT which is how I would classify what you're talking about, but machines, devices, uh, sensors, you know, the sensor in your sneaker <laughs> when you're playing tennis to compare in real time, you know, how you approach the ball with Roger Federer or the sensor in your tennis racket or the tennis ball, what, what kind of spin you put on the ball. You know, that I do think is a huge area of opportunity. And, uh, you know, that's gonna be helped to be enabled by 5G as you get a lot more devices can connect, you know, affordably with higher throughput and lower latencies. And I do think that's a big future market. I do think being at the edge gives you a, a big advantage there. 
and and so yeah, I do think that's a, a very interesting future. Got it. Small, you, you mentioned tennis. You know, I actually saw you at the U.S. Open many years ago. Uh, randomly, you were there with your family, and they put you up on the jumbotron. I don't know if you knew that, but I'm like, ah, oh, I know that guy. And then I, I found you in the crowd. But it, it's funny. Wow. Tennis. <laughs> My daughter's a big um, uh, tennis fan, so we would, in the days when we could go, we, we would go see some of the matches. You mentioned, um, you know, Edge, and then as part of the Edge is 5G. Do you get excited about 5G as it relates to Akamai? Is that a big deal? I mean, there's this, you know, it's, it's, I think, almost become a classic phrase now, which is that 5G needs Edge, but the Edge doesn't need 5G. You know, when you think about the Edge and Akamai's business, is 5G going to be a big driver of, of opportunity, you think, for you guys? I do, you know, and because you connect a lot more devices, higher throughput, lower latency, and it's more important than ever to be at the edge, which means, well, in the tower or very close, close to the device. Because if you're back in the cloud or the core data centers, you're going to have the, the latency there and not be able to take advantage of the lower latency now in the last mile and take advantage of the throughput there and have the scale you're going to need for all these devices connecting. And so you know, I think when we see 5G, the impact will be similar to what we saw with broadband. And you'll see a whole bunch of new applications suddenly flourish. You know, who would have thought of social networking and all the implications of that? And it was really you know, broadband that I think helped enable that. And so whenever you have those leaps forward in the last mile or the connectivity to the devices, creates huge opportunities for a need to be at the edge. And that's great because you know, Akamai is in well positioned there. And we're working with all the major carriers on you know, their 5G projects. Got it. We've, uh, we've approached the, the point in the podcast where I'm referring to is the lightning round, where I'm going to ask you a handful of questions. And I won't ask you any follow-up questions, and we'll just let your answers speak for themselves. Uh, we'll try to keep them to less than 30 seconds each. But the first question I have is, why hasn't Akamai ever been acquired? Well, somebody would have to offer uh, you know, a value that the board thought you know, was commensurate with the value of the company. I have so many follow-up questions, but I just promised I won't ask them. Next one is, what year, in what year will security revenue represent greater than 50% of total revenue for Akamai? Well, uh, you know, it depends how fast security grows and how fast uh, CDN grows. I don't know, maybe uh, five years, maybe 2025, I, I, you know, ballpark, we'll see. And was this a good e-commerce season? Yes. Great. And then my last question, and I don't know if you're a New England Patriots fan, but as a Buffalo Bills fan, speaking with somebody who's based in Boston, I, I feel I have to ask, which is, how have you been enjoying the, uh, the NFL football season so far this year? I'll have to confess, I, I haven't watched much of it. So, uh, yeah, haven't, haven't been a good fan this year. I, I think a lot of people in England are probably saying the, the same thing. Tom, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. And um, enjoy your, uh, your holidays, and we'll talk to you soon. Very good. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.